In times of chaos and breakdown, where might we turn for guidance? To the myths, the storytellers, the wisdom keepers and the rabble-rousers. To the ones braving the seas of uncertainty, not with answers, but with poetry, beauty, and well-crafted questions. I'm Ian McKenzie, co-founder of the School of Mythopoetics, a place to gather with like-hearted folks to navigate the mysteries together. And this is The Crow's Nest, where I speak with an array of guests who are employing their mythic imagination to engage with the tempest of the times. You're invited to join me live on YouTube each week. Visit schoolofmythopoetics.com slash podcast to learn more. And now, enjoy our conversation. Greetings, friends. This is Ian McKenzie here once again live for this conversation uh, series, which I call The Crow's Nest in connection with the School of Mythopoetics. And um, as you just heard, that uh, this really is an invitation for a live wrangling, a live wondering with an array of guests I've had uh, over the last 20-ish episodes so far. It seems funny how they seem to collect more and more. Um, those of you tuning in live, thank you for joining us. You have your opportunity to leave your chronicle of comments, and uh, hopefully we might have some time to weave some in if there's some questions. And uh, for those that are going to listen later on Spotify, Apple, wherever it is, welcome as well. And so uh, this conversation was, um, the intention is to uh, bring together two guests who I've had the pleasure of uh, wrangling with on a few occasions. Um, more, one more recently, who um, you'll hear about in a moment, but uh, let me introduce them both uh, to you. The first is North, North, Norse mythographer and author, Andreas Corneval, who uh, also has a recent book, Waking the Dragons, of which uh, we talked about on a previous episode of The Crow's Nest. He's coming to us from Brighton and grateful to have Andreas here on the show once again. Andreas, welcome. Hi, Ian. Good to see you. And uh, you have a partner in uh, partner in, in sorcery and magic and the rest, it seems, that uh, you've uh, drawn to you. And I had the pleasure of meeting in California in person, finally, back in uh, August and um, been uh, excited to see what you two have put together and have uh, brought to the school, which we'll uh, get to in a moment. But uh, I'm told this one is best recognized as a storyteller and a sorcerer. And we'll <laughs> maybe hear a little bit what that means, but welcome, Chase. Levy as well. Hey, Ian, thank you. Well, here we are. And, um, you know, there's some big, big wonderings afoot in what you've put together, uh, which also just went live in the school in terms of folks can can connect with it. It's a uh, six-month journey that you've put together. Uh, and it's called Tending the Well of Memory. Tending the Well of Memory. And, um, you know, before I pretend to know where to launch into that, I thought I'd just turn it over to you. And here... What does that even mean mythically, um, mm. you know, to, to approach tending the well? And maybe how haven't we been tending the well? Uh, and how might that have led to the times that we're in? Either of you, please feel free to jump in. Should I start, Chase? Yeah, I see, I see the floor to you. All right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, 
so the well of memory is an extraordinary thing. It's um, in a sense in the notion of time um, when we look at northern myth is that it goes often the opposite to our intuitions. Um, as a as a as people of the book, we can say as people who've been grow who've grown up with writing. Um, when we write words, we often write. Uh, when we start writing, we write in this chronological time, which means that we're moving to the future. We're heading somewhere. And the well of memory effectively is a, is a deeper idea that it comes from, I, I think it comes from more the oral tradition, where in fact the past is the future, in a sense that we become memories our lives, our families, uh, our expressions, the work we do end up in this great well of memory. And this well of memory needs tending. It needs, uh, sometimes we need to uh, look, at, look at our memories. And um, the reason for that is that the memories themselves, in Old Norse, we can say it's the clay that feeds the deep roots of the tree of life. So by having forgetfulness, by having amnesia, by all of these things, we are drying up the well. We're not tending it properly. So tending the well of memory is the very heart of a ceremony, of the inner engineering of ceremony. It is to, it is to have remembrance. It is to remember the stories. And then that fills the well. And when the will, well fills, it sort of surges up to the tree, and then it provides the flowering the flowers, the petals grow from that, and that's the present time. So our present time also is very much linked into the past. So in a, in a sense, we're all ending up in the well of memory. Mm. I hope that made, made sense somehow. I mean, I, I'm tempted just to jump in before I pass it over mm. to you, Chase. I mean, yeah, this question of memory, uh, I might just offer a little something that I've been wrangling recently. I wrote a piece around uh, the Truth and Reconciliation here in Canada, which is where I'm based, um, which had a lot to do with memory, actually, in terms of um, what is it to um, remember, I mean, how this very country came to be over here in Canada, of course, in, in North America, Turtle Island, um, and how the inability to practice or to feed this well of memory, it feeds this this kind of great forgetting, of course, right? and you know, the, that's something Stephen Jenkinson had said one time in his class was something like, you know, it's human to forget how to be human, but the real calamity is when everybody forgets at the same time. Mm -hmm. And then we're in trouble, right? And, and we can see that in terms of the encroachment of, you know, the climate and um, how things, you know, you start to forget, wait, how was it before, you know? And, and, and when the, the eldership and the memory of the older ones isn't regarded and respected, uh, that somehow it's, it again, feeds this great, nothingness, you know, now I'm conjuring the never ending story or something where, you know, this great nothing is, is sort of eating everything, right? And so these images come to, you know, they swim up for me, but I'd love to hear from you, Chase. So, yeah, what does it mean to tend the well of memory? Mm. Well, it feels like when you're, when you were just speaking, evoking this sense of um, not only um, did we forget, are we forgetting all at the same time and the sort of travesty that that is, but there's also the active process of um, uh, erasing memory, of um, changing stories, of, of enchantment 
um, is one way that we could talk about it. And there's a way in which um, um, the projects of modernity um, are built upon a, a weave of a certain type of memory, a certain type of history and storytelling about what it means to be human and what it means to be um, uh, a citizen on, on earth. And that these, um, from I think from the perspective of story and from the perspective of myth and definitely from the perspective of um, sorceress practice are um, stories that have no memory in them. They're, um, they're stories that, that um, uh, kind of fall from the sky uh, uh, without a, a sort of um, any seed place in, in the earth. And I think that that's one of the most evocative images about the tree of life being fed by a well of memory for me is this sense of um, the roots of, of a life worth living on this planet of a beautiful tree. Um, they go down into the soil. They're nourished by water and um, by the soil of the planet. And um, that part of um, a memory to, like that, um, there's a something I have read from uh, which Peter Gray, who runs the Scarlet Imprint with his partner, Alkisis Demesh, of like witchcraft gives you access to a memory the size of the earth. And for me, that's that's what kind of well we're talking about here. So those are the things that come come forward uh, in response to what you two are weaving. Mm. Andreas, yeah. I mean, is anything jumping out at you? I see you kind of kind of leaning and nodding. Yes. Um, I think also the 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 heart of ceremonial practice uh becomes quite self-evident that uh we gather to uh to look towards the roots and um and when we do that we don't live so much in this chronological order anymore we're looking into something um suddenly where we are feeding uh some of the shoots into the from the tree of life we're allowing these shoots to grow a little tiny shoot will grow if you praise a relative you know at a particular time of the year you know that's sometimes enough but a lot of a lot of growth can come when we honor those who have passed and as we see now with all the catastrophes that are happening around us it's like well when there are victims out there when people suffer and have been uh or you know as we can see lying on streets and all this ho horrible scenery we it's as if you know to honor to sometimes to honor the dead you know we need to stop um we need to take take hold and go back into the engineering of ceremony back into the feeding of the well so this tree of life stands a chance because the moment we we uh, we become forgetful of the preciousness of a human soul um then all this violence can be unleashed all these things can take place i think that's when really the well of memory starts to dry up Right. We lose the we lose our awareness of what preciousness of the human soul, each individual soul is. And when the tree falters and this says in the Eddas, the tree is caught on fire and he will shake and he will falter from violence, from conflict, from forgetfulness in this way. Mm. You know, I'm struck as well that you've chosen to uh, triangulate this this journey that we're speaking to here. Uh, around Scandinavia, it seems, around the the rich living tradition, the mythic tradition of Scandinavia. Um, I know Andreas as well. I mean, Norse 
mythologist is is your wheelhouse too it seems and i wonder what what is it that you feel is is living and can be you know engaged with um in these times why turn to that living ecosystem of myth um if i understand your question correctly is it what northern myth can offer today in its mm -hmm. in, in what we find within it is that is that the, the question yeah exactly yeah because yeah. it seems that you've plotted a you've plotted a journey right through this rich ecosystem yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's plenty. It's enough. It's it's enough, right? Within, if you start adding other other cultures and things, it becomes, uh, you know. Although that's a, a wonderful diversity, but you, we're focusing in on the northern myths. What they do have in them, there are many. There are a few things that come that have come to me over the years. I mean, I've I've I have worked with the creation myth now for at least ten years, um, the the poetic edda and the prose edda. And within the creation myth, I have noticed that I can I can start to see that there are um, metaphors and and things that happen in the creation myth that speak directly at the moment to the the situations that we find ourselves in. So this is the classic example, which is where where myth has nothing to do with history. Myth is everything to do with now, right? Everything to do with what's happening today. And, and one of the uh, areas that I find fascinating when I started off was how grief was extremely central to the Northern myth and also how reconciliation was accent, accent, very, very central to the myths. And what I didn't realize from the sort of kind of Viking appropriation type of, of awareness that, that this is actually, this has some real um, wisdom that goes far back into the Bronze Age of how to live together, how to have a diverse number of gods. That's one of the things. How to manage them, right? This whole "my god is better than you" the new the newer god nonsense that we see everywhere. You know, how do we manage that, right? And I see that the Eddas provide, um, it's particularly in the creation myths, they provide very succinct answers to these questions that can be practiced and that can be reenacted and um, and brought back to life. Mm. Mm. Thanks for that. Chase, yeah, what comes to you? Um, well, there's kind of two things. I'm glad that that's where Andreas went because when I first started working with you, Andreas, one of the things that really uh, got under my skin was the centering of grief and reconciliation in the in the, eco the like mythic ecology, um, and as a descendant of settlers on um, unceded and stolen land, particularly the Coast Miwok and the Pomo Southern Pomo here in what's called Sonoma County, um, this sense of like um, what does it mean to make a lifeway here as a settler that puts grief at the center of what what is mine to do to um to to grieve well in service to life and that doesn't uh take away also the responsibility to be acting um and to be a part of transformation but to like really put grief at the center of um part of what this is about so for me that's been one of the great calls in deeper and deeper into this sort of ecology of magic and folklore and mythology um and i feel really um, just the sort of weight of that. Um, and I, and the way in which grief is a, um, a kinship building process, at least in my reading of um, 
the creation myth and particularly the Voluspa, the um, the gods are, are making kinship ties with each other and, and making reconciliation through grief in this way of um, when I ask myself how to build kinship with place and how to build kinship with the other than human, um, weirder than human beings that I'm sharing locale, my localities with, like being able to um, share my grief out loud as a part of my practice, um, both as a storyteller and as a, a sorcerer, there um, it calls things forward. There's this water of life that is then shared with ecology that, that I've noticed builds a deeper sense of kinship. Um, and so those things really, really call to me. Um, and I think also something that the last thing, sorry, I know I'm rambling, is just there's a way in which um, reclaiming the uh, Nordic and Northern aesthetic from those who would, would, wish to, would, would wish to weaponize it for white supremacy feels really like a powerful reason to dive into this particular realm. Um, mm. The white supremacists and those who wish to do violence to folks on this planet have no problem with weaponizing and using these stories. And um, I think just letting them have them because we're scared to touch something that feels contaminated um, is an easy move to make. And, I, and I, it's not a move that I'm willing to make. And that's mm. why I stay here and keep putting my feet in the ground um, mm. with these stories and these traditions. Mm. Thank you. And I'm curious now to talk of storytelling and, uh, you know, in the introduction, uh, I introduced you as a storyteller and a sorcerer. And uh, I wonder, is how is storytelling sorcery? Or how is sorcery maybe a form of storytelling? Yeah, I'd love to hear from you, Chase, maybe on that first. That's a, that's a really good question. Um, one, one way that I've been thinking about it recently, so Aleister Crowley, um, you know, the most wicked man in Britain, is quoted to have said um, that magic is the art and science of affecting change in accordance with your will, um, right? So to take something you will and to affect change in the world. And that's a pretty good definition of magic. Um, it works for a lot of people. And for me, there was something in it as I've deepened in this practice, this sense of actually it feels more like the art and science of affecting change in accordance with uh, the will. And for me, that has connotations of the um, quivering potential of chaos at the heart of the universe, like Ginnun Gagap in the Poetic Edda, right? There's this, there's this um, force, what Gas Boucher, the French sorcerer, calls like the sorceress current that um, we're attempting to affect change in accordance well with. And one of, in the Northern magic practices, particularly Seder um, connected, there's one of the main ways that I've understood that we affect change or cast spells is by speaking out loud or singing out loud, um, using this channel to move spirit. Um, and for me, that is, that's, it's, it's the same thing that a storyteller is doing. And particularly in the sort of lineage of storytelling, my, you know, my deep 
gratitude to you, Andreas, as my teacher, and also to Martin Shaw, Dr. Martin Shaw, and to Robert Bly and Michael Mead. There's this way in which um, your will for the story steps out of, way, out of the way and becomes apprentice to the will, the sorceress current of that story in that moment with those people. And so really the distinction is nothing. It's two titles for the same role because you're making and breaking enchantments as a storyteller in, in accordance with the will of the sorceress current of the place and the moment and the tale. Um, and if you start telling stories about the gods, yeah, you could look at like, get like you're telling a story about the God, but really what you're doing is you're evoking or invoking that God into that room with those people and they're going to have their way. They're bigger than me. We can do all the protection we want, but they're going to do what they came to do. Um, and so that for me has been the route into sorcery, into magic um, through storytelling. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Chase. You know, I, there's a quote here actually that I pulled um, that I, I think fits well. And then maybe I turn it over to you, Andreas, what this may stir in you on the same mm -hmm. theme. So this is actually a quote last night. I was reading a book, uh, most probably, depending on who you talk to, you would probably know it. It's called The Fifth Sacred Thing by Starhawk, um, which um, whether or not you've read it, I mean, it's been this sort of speculative uh, visionary fiction about a sort of near-term future for humanity. And maybe, yeah, Chase, you're kind of nodding, maybe you read it. Andreas, maybe you read it or heard of it. Um, yeah, there's a, really, there's a quote that came up last night and I actually took a photo just to have it. And it feels like now is a moment to, to speak it. But... Uh, one of the characters says to the other, uh, you remember the Dion Fortune quote you've always been fond of, that magic is the art of changing consciousness at will. But she goes on to talk about war, actually, which is why I think it's appropriate. She says, you can look at a war as a massing of arms and material and troops, but you can also see it as something else, as a delicate web of interwoven choices made by human beings made out of a certain consciousness. The decision to order an attack the choice to obey or disobey an order, to fire or not to fire a weapon. Armies, and indeed any culture that supports them, must convince the people that all the decisions are made already and they have no choice. But that is never true. So mad as it seems, this is the terrain upon which we base the defense of our city, that landscape of consciousness. So I just wanted to leave it there for a second. Yeah, maybe Andreas, I mean, whether or not you read the book, but what, what stirs in you in terms of this subject and, you know, what's going on right now, of course, in a few places in the world? Wow. Okay. How long have we got now? It's, uh, <laughs> that's like, uh, should we set up a university department together to solve this, <laughs> to solve this question? Let's do it. Uh, is there a nearby university, Ian? We can, you know. That's a few, these are big, big questions, of course, um, you know, definitions of all of these of magic and all, all, uh, you know, the, the, the consciousness um, from a, from the creation myths, um, we get this very interesting idea, which is called the urlog, and it means primal laws. And um, it's a particular thing. Ur is a sort of a primal and log. You can, yeah, translate it as a primal law. And which means, I guess, Chase, you were you were bringing it out a bit. The primal laws of the of the great emptiness, um, the great awareness, Ginungaga, that the Buddhists will 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 can tell you more about. But this this idea is that whatever happens in your life it, it's a it's similar to the idea of karma. It's that you 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 um, you have 
in the present moment, you have all the potential, but there's a tapestry behind you. There is a, there's all the things that you have done up to the present moment. But, but in the present moment, you have all the potential because the future, you see, is the, is the, is the idea that um, it's called skuld in Old Norse or the, the Norn skuld insinuates the future. She's always hidden. She's veiled. Right? So the future is not something we can reach. It's not something we can find ourselves in. It's always veiled. But the present has the capacity to move a different tapestry. So if the tapestry behind us looks beautiful, but there could be some, some embroideries that are a little bit, you know, going off in places, in the, in the present moment, we can start to thread a new pattern, a new form of tapestry. Um, and when we look at it, it will be from the notion of the past. So, so time stays in the present, but grows out of the past. But the future will not. So the future always re retains this hidden notion. And um, just to give you an idea when it comes to witchcraft, because this is a funny, a little, a little short story on this, is that missionaries approached um, a witch um, um, in Sweden, or it's a sort of a half myth. We don't, of course, we don't know if this happened or not. But for the for this, you know, but they approached and and um, and and she um, she immediately asked them does your God know the future? And the missionaries, of course, would say, yes, of course he does. Or he's the Alpha, he's the Omega, he's, you know, he knows the future. And she became furious and she wanted them to leave. And, and obviously witches and missionaries don't really uh, get along very well, as we know. But, but she said, but, but the, one of the missionaries, he said, well, why are you so upset? And, and she said, well, if he knows the future, that means that he hasn't got the capacity to change it. Um, and suddenly there was a standoff between this idea that if the future is already embroidered, if the future has already been set, right, then all of that which is happening, there is no capacity of change. There's no capacity of changing the pattern. And this is a very profound, short little story of, of seeing that it is through the the our our actions that we have we given the will to actually then thread a new design right it's not been put up as a as a um as a sort of uh, uh you know written out exactly what will happen so so this standoff is quite is quite profound in terms of um the notions of time from a from a northern say a northern idea of fate to the more the monotheistic idea mm. does that does that make sense mm -hmm. yeah, yeah and that obviously then relates to what what chase how he defines witchcraft is that you stand you're staying in the threads of the of the tapestry mm. um so you have that capacity to change where the mm. was it that led zeppelin song you you can always change the road that you're on that's the mm. that's the, the phrase you can always train, change the stitch. Maybe that's what I'm hearing too. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Chase, yeah, what stirs for you in that? Hmm. There's so much um, in there. I, I I love this this image of um, the fury coming from this sense of that. Then he can't change it. This uh, you know he can't change the future if you know it. And um, this uh, this way that that asks. Um, both as a, for example, I'm thinking about from a storytelling perspective, um, if I know exactly what is going to happen, uh, 
through, through the whole story, then I'm, uh, I've created a fortress. I'm in a fortress of story at that moment um, up on the stage. And, um, and I'm not um, attuned to the other stitches and threads that um, are calling to be woven. I'm just kind of in my little fortress. And there's a way I think that that happens also in um, practice, you know, particular traditions of ceremonial or ritual magic where you are starting to kind of just do these very well-planned, well-written out, prescribed um, uh, acts to get particular goal, uh, goals met. And there's a way in which um, this sort of, you build a fortress, your magic circle becomes a fortress. Um, and I met, mentioned Gas Boucher earlier, but he, one thing that he has really impressed in his work that I find wonderful is that the, the era of the magician in the magic circle is, is over. The era of being a conjurer who casts a circle of protection around themselves and then summons a demon in, in a sigil away from them um, is over and that the um, the trouble is 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 too great and it's too close to us and that it's woven into our, our very being it's interpenetrating us at all times and so what does it mean to be a person um, who takes it upon themselves to uh, uh, be woven not just to be a weaver and to become penetrated by the weave I'm gonna, and I think that that's one thing that happens in storytelling, but also in witchcraft is that you um, voices that are not your own be, uh, move through your body. You um, become attuned to influences that are, that are not just human, that are not just will, that are um, from the place, that are from uh, the imaginations of the other folks in the room, that are from the ancestors. And then you are weaving, um, like you said, Andreas, like myth is not about history. It never happened. Happened. It always is happening. Uh, Odin never hung on a tree for nine days. He always is hanging on the tree for nine days. And when we tell these stories or enact them as rituals, um, we uh, there's this like we're what we're woven. Um, and, and the other thing I was going to say, which I I forgot to mention, of course, which is the, probably one of the most important parts in this, is that. If he was to change the future, let's say, then what he thought before would have been wrong. Right? So, uh, so you have this, this issue because uh, if, let's say, there was an intervention, we're not going to have the, this is not how things are going to pan out. We're going to change it. But then, hang on, what you thought before the future will be. So, so there is no option. So once you have the layout, that chronological layout, which again, I think comes very much from our writing, um, our chronological idea of a heaven up, up, up the road follows the way in which we write from left to right, you know, or well, right to left as well. But this the way of that chronology of things happening up, up, up the, up the hill or, or forward motions. And that again is the thing about the well of memory is that we need to also recognize that that's where we end up. And if there's no one singing for us, or if there's no one telling that story, then that part of the tree withers and, and becomes vulnerable. And we mm -hmm. see that, of course, um, across the world with the, 
with with cultures everywhere when um, this the when the shoots withers when the forgetfulness sets in but uh, yeah so fa anyway fascinating um mm. area of exploration yeah well this rich conversation is uh finding its way to a, a close you know for now but i'd love to hear and maybe the listeners to hear as well what the journey you've put together is for six months which we'll be launching uh next month in november in the school of mythopoetics it's a vast terrain but maybe you could just give some of the highlights of the the journey that uh, participants can expect to go on chase do you want to say mm. something or yep yeah um so we we really envisioned this journey as a um deepening into um ecological uh intimacy and awareness um and and then also into um story and myth and magic and so there's sort of uh these twin roads that are going through the course around turning on the awareness to ecology um using for example the story of sigurd and fafnir and, and the drinking of dragon's blood to learn the language of the birds to um crack open our awareness and to start to pull in that kind of uh feedback from place and then to move into um, territories of asemic alphabets and eco-asemio, which is something that Andreas is deeply passionate about. So these, I'll let him talk about it a little bit more, but these languages um, from place, from the earth, these alphabets and chants from, from earth. And to move from there into making maps of our places, both imaginal and, and um, uh materially imaginal maybe they're not so different right and so to start mapping out um the kinds of roads that we're walking and start to tend the tree of life through um deep engagement with place and with story and with our histories and um, to be given and guided through um practices um with uh turning on the prophetic imagination and turning on the parts of ourselves that um, remember how to weave in. Um, and so those are sort of sort of some of the core pieces that I have been um, thinking and churning on as we put together this curriculum. Yeah, no, that's about right. We're, we're also we're going to follow. Um, yeah, the, the curriculum will also follow. We, we will do some of the traditional rune work, of course. Um, also the Asemic bit, which is uh, languages that we that we can access through looking at patterns in nature. We're looking at um, you know, sigils and runes from, from the actual movements of the rivers or the patterns of the barks of the tree and how a chant can be born from a flower or from a mountain and all of these things that we're gonna look into. Um, the aspect of the polysensoral psyche, which is very much the, uh, which belongs very much, I find, in Swedish folklore in particular, the different parts of the self and um, and how they relate to the myths. Uh, we, we we have found that our our the the notion of a soul of this one soul notion. We're going to look into what is it like if we have seven souls um, and what do they look like, uh, which is not so dissimilar to the idea of the the Indo-European idea of the chakras. In fact, which we're gonna we're gonna look into that. Also, of course, then the inner engineering, all the the work on ritual, the tree of life. Um, how it responds to ritual, the pantheon, um, all the beings in the pantheon, and uh, and then how we can develop 
slowly but surely how, how we how we can actually start developing a practice a daily practice uh in all of this mm. wow beautiful i'm excited and uh, i hope listeners are too and for those that are interested to find out more details you can head to schoolmythopoetics.com slash tending the well for more info registration is not quite open yet it'll be up probably later this week uh, for those that want to jump in and register for the start which will be around the 13th i believe of November. Well, gratitude to you both for taking the time today uh, to wonder about these things. Uh, those of you who tuned in live and those who listen in the time to come, um, away we go into the mystery. Thank, Thank you, Ian. Ian, and thanks, everyone. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Crow's Nest. Please consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing this episode with your friends. To learn more about the School of Mythopoetics and attend our upcoming events, visit schoolofmythopoetics.com.